This Parsha podcast is dedicated in honor of a new baby, Yehoshua David, the son of our dear friends Matt and Chava David. Young Yehoshua received his bris this morning. And we wish the family a hearty Mazel Tov. And we extend our blessings to young Yehoshua that he grows up to be a beacon for the Jewish people. A Talmud Chacham, a Torah scholar, and one who brings joy and pride to his family, to his community, and to the Almighty. It's Parsha podcast time. And of course, our hearts are fluttering. Our joy is overwhelming. And we're so excited to study Torah together. And I was thinking, you know, there's a war going on now in Israel, as you know. And sadly, every day we hear about casualties, people who are injured, people who, God forbid, are killed. And of course, our hearts are with the soldiers and the hostages. And maybe someone can ask the question, how can we be happy? How can we be joyous? How how can we be celebrating when our brothers and sisters are going through that pain and that trauma and that difficulty and that nightmare? And it's a fair question. We know, we read about it in the partial last week, that when the world is suffering, certainly when our family, the Jewish people are suffering, that's not a time to be joyous. That's not a time to be basking in pleasurable pursuits. So maybe we should shut out the podcast, or maybe we should be a bit more dour in the podcast. We should be a little, a little bit more toned down or sad, or you know, we're having so much fun here. Maybe it's not appropriate. That is a fair question. And I, I think that there's an important point over here. Certainly, we are dedicating our studies to the soldiers, and we're hoping that our Torah study makes an impact. As we mentioned in the past, the Talmud tells us that Torah's magna umatzla Torah saves and protects. It is the weapons that help us on a spiritual dimension. And that's well-founded in the sources. However, there is a condition. Only certain types of Torah study beget this protective Kevlar. And that is joyous study. The Torah was given initially at Sinai. It was given with great joy. And only if we could somehow channel that Sinaitic Torah and study with joy as well, only then do we have the protection. A few weeks ago in the Parsha, we read about Jacob usurping the blessings from Asaph. He impersonates his brother, he masquerades as his brother, and he comes and he steals the blessings. And Asaph was not too thrilled, you will recall, about this heist. And he says that when my father dies, And when there's mourning over my father, I am going to kill Jacob. Simply put, Esau is waiting till his father passes so he can murder Jacob because he doesn't want to cause his father distress. That's the simple interpretation. But the Kleoker, he says, one of the great commentators on the Torah, he says that no, Jacob is invulnerable to Esau because Jacob's studying Torah. And when Jacob is studying Torah, Asaph has no power over him. 
However, when someone is mourning, a mourner is prohibited from studying Torah because Torah brings joy. And when you're mourning, you're supposed to be sad and you're supposed to dwell in that sadness. And therefore, there's going to be a time, says Esau, in the future where Jacob is not studying Torah. He's mourning for the death of Isaac and then he is vulnerable and then I'll attack him. That is what the Kaliyakar explains. But here's the problem. The halacha is that a mourner is allowed to study Torah, but only things that don't bring them joy. And therefore, how is it going to help Asaph to wait until Jacob is mourning, and then he's not going to be studying Torah, and then he's vulnerable while he can still study Torah, the matters that do not bring joy? Evidently, we can deduce from this that joyless Torah, that does not beget protection. It's only when we experience the joy, the unbridled joy, the delight of Torah, then it provides protection. And therefore here at the Torch Center in Eastern Texas, we love Torah and we love studying it joyously. And the Parsha podcast, it makes us happy. It makes me happy, at least. I don't know about you. It makes me happy every time I get to sit here in front of the microphone and talk about the Parsha with y'all. And therefore, we're going to continue doing it. And we're not going to feel guilty about the fact that we are joyous while doing it. In fact, it is preferable. When we study Torah, of course, we have to never forget about our brothers and sisters. But when we're studying Torah, we do it the way it is intended to be studied, not just, you know, sit down and, you know, be miserable like accountants going over numbers, like actuaries glazing your eyes over spreadsheets. No, this is Torah. This is the Almighty's Torah and it's alive and it's still alive as it was at Sinai. And we get the great privilege to study it together here in the Torch Center on the Parsha Podcast. My email address is rabbiwalbyachimut.com. Let's begin Parshas Vayigash. We're going to cover today, please, got two segments on the Parsha. One's like a an interesting question, an interesting line of inquiry, a loose end that has not been addressed quite yet. And then a longer segment that's going to be more of a deeper study on an iconic Midrash in our Parsha. So this Parsha is the end of the Joseph Trilogy. Joseph was hated by his brothers. They couldn't stand him. They thought that he was bad-mouthing them to Jacob, and they had reason to get rid of him, to kill him, maybe not, throw him to the pit, sell him as a slave. Jacob is inconsolable, and for 22 years, he's just wallowing in, in, in misery. He's losing his prophecy, or say, just tell us. And no matter what the family does, he is not comforted. Meanwhile, Joseph heads down to Egypt, and through a long series of events that we all know, of course, he ends up on the throne, and he is stewarding, he's overseeing, he's managing all of Egypt. Pharaoh's the titular head, he's the nominal head, but Joseph is running everything, and he is supervising the seven years of plenty, and now we're in the years of famine. And his brothers come, and he toys with them, and he plays games with them, and he's accusing them of crimes that they are not 
guilty of, all in an effort to try to effectuate those dreams and in an effort to determine if their enmity towards him, and by extension towards Benjamin, is still ongoing. And in our parsha, spoiler alert, he will reveal himself to his brothers and the process of the Jewish people and the family of Jacob descending down to Egypt in fulfillment of the divine prophecy conveyed to Abraham in the covenant between the parts, chapter 15 of Genesis. This is all being played out in our Parsha. Joseph began the Joseph saga with two dreams. In the dreams, he demonstrated, he displayed, he exhibited supremacy over his brothers. We're all bundling the bundles and your bundles bow down to my bundle. You submit yourself to me. Dream number one. Dream number two, he tells his brothers, the sun, the moon, and 11 stars are bowing to me. And of course, the brothers ridicule him. They mock him. Are you, are you really going to rule over us? Are you going to dominate us? Are you going to be teamed over us? Maybe they were envious of him, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And Jacob secretly harbored a suspicion that this would actually happen. He was anticipating it. But these dreams came true. Joseph, in fact, was installed as a king in Egypt, and the brothers came and bowed before him. But what about dream number two? Dream number one, it was only 11 bundlers of of wheat bowing to him. Dream number two is the sun and the moon. And 11 stars, the sun and the moon is the father and the mother. And already when this dream happened, Jacob said, well, can we come, me, me and your mother? Your mother is no longer with us. Rachel already passed away. So it's not possible for Rachel to come and bow down before Joseph. But maybe Rashi tells us this is a reference to Joseph's adoptive mother, Bilhah. But here's the question, just the, the line of inquiry. Did Jacob bow for Joseph? So if you look at the end of the story, so next week's Parsha, Parsha's Vayichi, it begins that Jacob is about to die and he calls over Joseph and he wants to be buried in Israel and not buried in Egypt. And he conveyed his request and Joseph accepted and he made him swear. This is chapter 47, verse 31. Swear to me, he swore to him. And then the verse says, Vayishtachu Yisrael al Roshamita, Jacob, which is Israel, Israel bowed to the head of the bed. Jacob bows. Who is Jacob bowing to? So the commentators disagree. The Sephorno says, for example, he is bowing to God. Rashi says he's bowing to Joseph. After Jacob had been in Egypt for 17 years, so this is after the whole big reveal, Joseph is alive, they go down to Egypt, he's been there for 17 years, he's about to die. He bows before Joseph. There's actually a very nice comment in Rashi. Rashi says that, you know, it's inappropriate for for Jacob, the father, to bow down before Joseph, the son. And he says, no, no, no. Even though the lion is the king, when the fox has his day of ruling, you're supposed to bow before him. Meaning, even though Jacob is older and he's the father and he's 
of course, superior to, to, to Joseph, but Joseph now is the king, and therefore it's appropriate to bow before him. Now, is this the fulfillment of the dream? It's not clear. No one that I found talks about this. So it's not clear. Did, 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 did dream number two actually come true? Now, there are some sources that say maybe it did, and there are sources that said that say that maybe it didn't. If you look at when the actual dream happened, so the beginning of Parshas Vayeshev, Jacob says to Joseph, how can you have this dream? Havonavo will me and your mother and your brothers come back before you? Your mother is no longer with us. Rashi implies, as you mentioned, that the dreams were fulfilled because it wasn't his mother, it was his adoptive mother, that is Bilha. Now, the Talmud says otherwise. The Talmud says, in one side of the Talmud, one opinion of the Talmud, that this story, this dream of Joseph, this is proof that even a prophetic dream that is foretelling the future and is accurate and is clairvoyant, there's got to be a little bit of the dream that is fake news, that's false. And here's the proof. Joseph has a true dream. But his mother, well, she's no longer with us. And therefore, the fact that the moon bowed before him, that didn't come true. And therefore, this dream, it must be that there's at least part of it that was not fulfilled. But this, of course, does imply that at least his father did bow before him. Now, the Ramban in his comment to that verse says as well that his father did bow before him, even though it's not mentioned in the Torah. One of the other commentators brings evidence that Jacob did not bow down before Joseph. In chapter 45, verse 1, this is when Joseph is finally about to reveal himself to his brothers. The verse says that Joseph could not hold back any longer. And he tells everyone in the room, get out, and he reveals himself to his brothers. What does it mean that Joseph could not hold out any longer? Says the Meshachachma, one of the great commentators on the Torah. It would have been appropriate for Joseph to maintain the charade until Jacob came. Just as he said, okay, I'm going to hold Shimon hostage until you bring me Benjamin, he should have continued, I'll hold Benjamin hostage until you bring me Jacob. And then Jacob should have come and bowed before him and fulfilled every element of that dream. But he couldn't handle it any longer. And therefore, he caved. But really, he should have held it out a little bit longer And he didn't, which I find to be very interesting. But I want to give you one more final comment on this. And I'm not taking any sides, of course, in these debates, because who am I to offer my opinion here when these luminaries, these giants, are each sharing their perspective on this interesting question as to whether or not Jacob, in fact, bowed before Joseph. In the Targum Yonasan, he says something very fascinating. 
When Jacob and Joseph finally met, the verse says that Joseph wept on the neck of Jacob. And Rashi says, well, Joseph cried, but Jacob did not because he was reciting the Shema. We've talked about that in the past. But Joseph is weeping. He's crying. Why is Joseph weeping? Why is he crying? So you and I would say, well, he's so emotional. He hasn't seen his father for so long. It's like the airport. You, you see your, your, your loved ones come back. You get all emotional. It's very hard for us to imagine the Torah is just telling us some sort of emotion that they had, like a, like a natural emotion. That's, of course, our instinct. But the Torah is telling us something for eternity. There must be some lesson for us. It's not simply a basic emotion that any parent or child would have at such a reunification get-together. So the Targum Yonasim says, this is again, this is going back, this is Mishnahite era. This is a very ancient, ancient perspective. He says that when Joseph and Jacob finally met, just as the brothers did not recognize Joseph, Jacob did not recognize him. And he sees this king approaching him, and he assumes it's Pharaoh. Jacob assumes that Joseph is Pharaoh. And therefore, Jacob prostrates himself before what he thought was Pharaoh, before Joseph. And Joseph was very disturbed by that, the fact that his father bowed before him. That's terrible. So when they actually embraced, he wept. He was so sad over it. Continues the Targum Yonasan. Joseph made a big blunder. He should have sent a message to Jacob ahead of time to prevent this from happening. He should have said, okay, we're, we're about to meet. It's me. It's not Pharaoh. I may look like Pharaoh, but it's me. And just be aware of that. He should have sent that message to Jacob. And he didn't. And as a result of this negligence, Jacob prostrated himself before his son, Joseph. And for this reason, Joseph died young. Joseph was the first of his brothers to die. And Joseph is very righteous, of course. He's one of the heroes. But he died young, relatively young. Why? Why did Joseph not live as long as his brothers? Says the Targum Yonasan, because he did not take adequate steps to prevent Jacob from bowing down to him. So yes, he bewailed over it, but it was not enough to prevent him from dying prematurely. Now, all of this I find to be interesting because, you know, it's part of the story that we kind of forget about. You know, we're, we're all into the reunion now. Wait a minute. Did, did the dreams actually happen? Did they, were they fulfilled as they were dreamt by, by Joseph? It's an unanswered question. I would add another point 
you know, these dreams are all part of the divine plan, the divine plan to send Joseph down to Egypt, to have him rise to the monarchy, to have him be there to prepare the world and the Jewish people, the family of, of Jacob for the famine, but also to usher the nation down to Egypt in fulfillment of the promise, the prophecy to Abraham that his descendants will be far as a foreign land and they'll be enslaved for 400 years, as we know, chapter 15 of Genesis. Well, Joseph dying young, that is part of perhaps this divine timeline. In the book of Exodus, it talks about the death of Joseph being a a milestone, being a marker in the acceleration of the oppression of the nation. Joseph died. And then there's a new Pharaoh who doesn't know Joseph, doesn't remember Joseph's contribution. So perhaps we can say, this is just, again, a little bit of mathematics here. It had to be that the prophecy, the prophetic dreams of Joseph included Jacob bowing to him, even though that's obviously a little bit uh, sacrilegious. It's inappropriate. And that led to Joseph died young, which ultimately sped up the process of the enslavement and subsequently the exodus. And that's perhaps why this element of, of Jacob bowing down to Joseph, why it's a necessary component of these dreams that are effectuating this, this transformation of the Jewish people and, of course, of all of human history. As a result, okay. This this was that was segment number one. I think it's an interesting point to uh, inquire. I never really thought about it before this year. We've been learning Parshas Vayidash now for eight years on the Parsha podcast, and this is an element of the story that we almost forgot about. But now we touched it briefly. I think it's a deeper take on the whole story to kind of reassess where we came from how we got to this point, and to see if all the the T's are crossed and the I's are dotted and everything has actually been fulfilled as was featured in in Joseph's dreams. Okay, let's hit the segment number two. Joseph reveals himself to his brothers. He's been playing games with them. He's been toying with them. They came to come down and he accuses them and he says, you're spies. And he puts them in three days of uh, a holding cell. And then he takes Shimon as a hostage and he sends it back with food. Bring me back Benjamin. He puts the money back in their satchels. And then they come with Benjamin and he's all nice to them and he releases Shimon. And then he sends them off, but he plants incriminating evidence in uh, the satchel of Benjamin. And of course, we know this is all as a means of testing the brothers if they are ready, if they've overcome, if they've changed in their attitude towards Joseph and his full brother, Benjamin. But finally, our parsha it's the end, it's the climax. You know, Judah intervenes. He, of course, is on the hook for Benjamin because he promised Jacob that he will return with Benjamin. And he makes this very impassioned speech, and he's arguing that uh, this is going to kill Jacob, and uh, he's very aggressive, 
and he's pleading his case. Finally, Joseph cannot handle it anymore, and he tells everyone to leave. This is chapter 45, verse 1. And there's no one in the room. It's just him and his brothers. And he starts crying. And his voice tarries all throughout Egypt. And then verse 3. He tells his brothers, Ani Yosef. I am Yosef. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And the brothers, they could not respond to him. They were tongue-tied. They were They were frightened from him. Joseph, in one instant, reveals himself to his brothers. I'm Joseph, that same Joseph. The Joseph that you sold. The Joseph that you cast into a pit. The Joseph that you considered executing. It's me. Nice to meet you again. And the brothers are dumbstruck. There's no response. There's absolutely stunned silence. In one instant, there's this masterful ringing reveal, this climax of, of two and a half parshios of buildup. It started with the dreams of Joseph, the brothers' enmity and ridicule and sardonic Derision, are you going to rule over us? You're going to be a king over us? You're a silly dreamer. Bal hachalomos halazah, you are a silly dreamer. You're a good for nothing. Should we kill you? Should we sell you as a slave for 20 silver coins? And then 20 years later, they meet this king and he's toying with them. And he's playing games with them and he's manipulating them. And he's asking to see Benjamin. This is, this is Joseph. This is Joseph. And they're completely dumbstruck. And they're out of words. In effect, 20 years, 20 years of assumptions come crashing down before them, crumbling to dust before their very eyes. All their perceptions, all their strongly held convictions, all their priors, poof, disappearing before their very eyes. The brothers, they had a reason why they treated Joseph the way they did. They thought that he was destabilizing the family. And they were certain that they had acted correctly with Joseph. Joseph, they viewed him as an existential threat to their lives. He's bad-mouthing them to to Jacob. And if Jacob says something bad about us, we're all going to die. He needs to be neutralized. And yes, of course, you know, we feel bad about Jacob. Jacob loves him. We don't know why Jacob loves him. He's, after all, good for nothing. But this is what needs to be done. And we're going to do it. Joseph is megalomaniacal. He's a danger. He needs to go one way or the other. And now they see Joseph. And Joseph is a great man. And they discover he always was destined for greatness. And he's worthy of the throne. And those silly dreams that we totally discounted, all along they were real. Somehow this good-for-nothing slave that we said we should kill him, okay, fine, let's sell him as a slave. He somehow became a king, the most powerful man in the world. And all at once, instantly, their entire worldview 
vanished. It evaporated. The Midrash, a very famous Midrash, we might have mentioned it in the past. The Midrash says that this experience, the brothers had this revelation. This will happen to every single one of us. I want to read this Midrash and analyze it carefully. It says the Midrash, Woe to us from the day of judgment. Woe to us from the day of tochacha, of reprimandation, of castigation. In the future, there will be a day of reckoning. There's judgment and there is reprimandation. Says the Midrash, this is a precedent. Joseph was the most junior of the tribes, of the brothers. And he gave them some rebuke, and they were unable to withstand it. They couldn't say anything. They were dumbstruck. If Joseph, the minor brother, the junior brother, and he provides this rebuke, and they can't say a word? All the more so when God himself, when he rebukes a person in this future day of judgment and this day of reprimandation, when God reprimands every person as per what he is, all the more so. This is the Midrash. The Midrash is comparing this meeting with Joseph, and specifically this revelation of Joseph, and specifically the fact that the brothers have no response to what Joseph says. Normally, if you make a claim against someone, they have an argument, they have a rebuttal, they have a response. How do you plead? The brothers have nothing to say. Says the Midrash, this is emblematic. This will resemble what every person will face. Woe to us for the day of judgment. Woe to us, says the Midrash, for the day of reprimandation, of castigation, because Joseph here is reprimanding his brothers and God will reprimand us. And if Joseph, who was more junior than the people he is indicting, and he says something so simple, but so disarming and so confounding to his brothers they have no response, All the more so, when God reprimands us, we will have no response. Thus says the Midrash. Now, I want to kind of analyze this Midrash in in two ways. One way, it's a very famous essay written by the Beis Halevi, one of the great uh, works on the Torah. It's quite a lengthy essay on this Midrash. And... uh, I want to offer a second approach, a Parsha podcast special uh, as well on this Midrash. So the Beis HaLevi, he inquires, he ponders, he probes this Midrash. And he starts off asking a basic question. What is the difference between judgment and admonition? If you read the Midrash, the Midrash starts off by saying, Woe to us from the Day of Judgment. Woe to us from the day of tochacha, which means rebuke or admonition. What's the difference between judgment and 
admonition. Question number two, where is their rebuke here? Joseph just said, I'm Joseph. Is my father still alive? Where's the rebuke? He wasn't accusing them of anything. He wasn't hearkening back to the crime that they did when they sold him. So where's the rebuke? Of course, they're surprised. This is quite unexpected. But where is the rebuke? So what he says is like this. Joseph is starting off by rebuking them. If you look at the following verse, so verse 4, in verse 4, he starts speaking about, oh, you, you know, I'm your brother, and don't worry about what, what you did. That, that's where that's when Joseph begins to appease them. But here, in this verse, he doesn't mention anything about brotherhood. There's no mention of anything conciliatory. He's making an accusation by saying, I am Joseph, is my father still alive? And this is something which, of course, is terrifying for them. This accusation coming from the same person who's so confrontational and hostile to them, and now he's Joseph and he has all the means to destroy us. This is something which is very terrifying for them. And when he levies this rebuke against them, they're very fearful and they're intimidated and they're silenced. And he points out, you know, even after all seems well and the brothers move into Egypt and they settle down and they're there for 17 years, after Jacob dies, there's a concern that maybe Joseph will now exact retribution. So they have to concoct a story. We'll read about this in Natchez Parsha. That Jacob instructed Joseph to not seek revenge. So if they were terrified of Joseph's revenge 17 years after the meeting, certainly now they would have a very good reason to be fearful. But what is the rebuke? Says the Beis Halevi. Joseph says, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? This is rhetorical. This is not a genuine inquiry. Oh, is dad still with us? It's rhetorical. Is Jacob alive? How can Jacob be alive if he's uncertain of my fate? I'm Joseph. How can Jacob live with these 22 years of uncertainty as to my fate? This is rebuke, and this is a rebuttal of Judah's impassioned argument. And Judah begins the parasha. He approaches Joseph, and, he, and all of his arguments are all about the pain, the anguish, the damage to the health of Jacob. He's so intertwined with the heart of Benjamin, and he'll die, and it's going to be so miserable for Jacob if Benjamin is taken away. Joseph is saying, I'm Joseph. I'm also the son of Jacob. And you sold me as a slave. And you weren't concerned about the well-being of Jacob. Is my father still alive? 
well, if he's alive without Joseph, maybe he can manage without Benjamin as well. Joseph is pointing out their hypocrisy. How can you be so worried about Jacob's reaction to Benjamin being taken away? When you were completely not concerned about that, you didn't care for once how Jacob would react when you did to me what you did to me. Says the Beis HaLevi, this is what the Midrash is saying. There is judgment for our behavior after we die by God. And there is admonition. There is din, which is judgment, and tochacha, which is admonition. When someone's judged, they're judged for their behavior. You did this, it's wrong. You did this, it's wrong. And that can be very difficult for a person to wrestle with. After all, you're being accused by the heavenly tribunal. But we all have some sort of excuse. Eh, you can always wiggle out of it. You could always say you did it for this reason, for that reason. There's always some sort of way that you can avoid culpability for your behavior. But then comes the admonition. In the admonition, you're shown the hypocrisy of your argument. The inconsistencies of your argument. And that precludes you from evading judgment. And he gives an example. Imagine there's someone, this is his example. I always have to be careful when I talk about charity, that I'm not just trying to give you some sort of encouragement to give to Torch a charity, it's the best charity in the world. This is his example, not mine. He's talking about charity, not me. We'll talk about charity during the fundraiser. Okay, we always accept donations, torchweb.org. Okay, let's continue. Charity. Someone who doesn't give charity. Well, they may have a very good reason. After all, it's so hard to make a living. And my expenses are so high. How can I possibly give others? Well, the judgment, maybe you could evade judgment. But then there comes admonition. Oh, you didn't have any money. Hmm. Well, let's look at what you did spend money on. Let's look at uh, how many times you use your money. This is, again, his example. Let's look at all the hypocrisy and all the inconsistencies. Use your money for this and this and this thing. Hmm, you have money for that. You wanted something which is a prohibited pleasure. His words, not mine. Or some sort of honor that you pursued. Or some sort of machloka, some sort of dispute, which is a terrible, of course, transgression where you cause a rift in the community. Or how many times you spent money on things that are just bad and harmful. So for that, you have money for and for charity, you don't have. Judgment can be perhaps answered away. Admonition is a repudiation of the argument. And this is the punchline of the Midrash, says the base Halevi. That there'll be judgment. And you'll have a response and you have a long list of defenses and all these alibis 
to get you off the hook. On that will come Tochacha, the day of admonition. There'll be judgment and rebuke, where the hypocrisy will be exposed, and thus your argument will crumble. And he gives a few examples of this. This is his example again. He says that, you know, people say, you gotta, gotta trust the science. Gotta trust the science. And if the science says, well, we don't have any evidence for God, you gotta trust the science. And if the science says that, well, you know, there was a mouse, but something happened, miracle, that mouse turned into a larger mouse, and then he, the, the mouse got even bigger and became a different species, and there's speciation, and from one amoeba and then some soup, the primordial soup, comes all of life. We got to trust the science. After all, they know what they're talking about. These are scientists. These are people who are committed to truth and pursuit of knowledge. Well, what do we do about the amoeba that, you know, there's no way to explain how one single-celled organism can come into existence? You know, if we used all of our engineering and technological prowess, we cannot produce a single amoeba. We can make nanochips and microchips and all sorts of rockets that go to the moon, allegedly, and we cannot make a single amoeba. But somehow that's the starting point. And we have this big soup and comes out of the soup, you know, a trillion species. But miraculously, the speciation stopped when we started chronicling what happens around us. But the scientists say it. They say it. Yeah, trust the science. Well, what about our sages? Isn't there some hypocrisy here? Oh, you're trusting those who are learned? What about those who are learned from your own family, from your own community, from your own religion? That's the first example he gives. Oh, to study Torah, it was so hard. My brain is so slow. I'm so dense. My mind is not agile to be able to study Torah. Okay, well, maybe that's a good response. But let's look at some of the other things the admonition court will say. Let's look at some of the other uses of your mind. Your, your mind was agile enough to engage in all sorts of questionable behavior. And he cites a, a midrash that uh, Elijah, Elijah the prophet, he once went from a place to place and he met a person who didn't have not any foothold in scripture or Mishnah. And uh, he was mocking Elijah. And Elijah said to him, well, what will you tell God on the day of judgment? How are you going to respond to the accusation that you ignored the Almighty's Torah? So this person, this ignoramus, told Elijah, I have a response. I got a great response, chambered, ready to go. I didn't have any wisdom. I didn't have any knowledge. My mind was slow. How can I study Torah? So Elijah responded to him, well, what do you do for a living? He says, well, I'm a, I'm a hunter. Hunter? What do you do? You, you, you make nets and you cast them into the water and you trap the animals. Well, you obviously do have some brains to do things which are distant, to go into the sea and to catch things that are far away from you that you can catch. But the tower that's 
really trapped in your heart. It's really close to you. It's in your mouth. It's in your heart to do it. You don't have the brains to do that. And this man was really taken by this rebuke. And he started crying. And he said to me, tried to comfort him, don't cry, repent. Anyone in the world who does tshuva repents, they will be aided from above. You can repent and you could study. I was thinking, you know, the kids today, it's so hard to memorize the names of all the parashios and to remember who was married to who and to learn the 12 months of the calendar and to memorize the 63 books of Mishnah and to learn the Torah well enough and to really remember it. But seven books of Harry Potter. No problem. Mrs. McGonagall, Professor Sprout. I know kids whose last names maybe sounds like mine. And maybe they have some room and board in my house. Maybe yes, maybe no. I don't know. Experts. Experts. Harry Potter. You guess them any question. In all seven books. What was this person wearing or what did they say? Wait a minute. If you have the mind to memorize these stories, you could certainly memorize a Mishnah. People know all the words of their favorite songs and all the celebrities and all their interactions. People could play sports with tremendous energy and strength. That is a, a little bit of an indictment. You have the strength, you have to use it also for good things as well. Thus concludes the Besalevi and his take of this Midrash. And it's very harsh and very scary because... All of us, you know, we think of ourselves as being good. And, you know, we'll work it out with God. We'll, we'll have a good response. We'll have a good zinger to respond. He knows. He understands. And here we see that there's a, there's a, there's a version of judgment, but there's also rebuke. There's also admonishment. Our arguments that we think are so convincing, just as Joseph's brothers, they thought they had an argument that was convincing. Says the Midrash, no, 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 no. There's also an element of that heavenly reckoning that is an admonishment, a tochacha. And for that, there is no response. This is the first take of this Midrash that I wanted to share with you today. I want to offer perhaps a bit of a slightly different take on this Midrash. If you think about it, according to the Beis Halevi, what exactly is the rebuke that Joseph is conveying to his brothers? The point of the rebuke is that, well, you claim, you profess to care so much about Jacob's suffering. Where were you when you sold me? The point of the rebuke is that the brothers are showing hypocrisy in their attitude towards Jacob's suffering, and that's why they're dumbfounded. But it's a little bit problematic, I think, because the brothers, you would imagine, could have a response. And they could say, yes, we made a mistake, and we were guilty in what we did with, with you, and we repented. In 22 years, we changed. 
So it seems like maybe the the, the rebuke shouldn't be as as visceral. It shouldn't be as as undeniable as as dumbfounding as it proves to be. They have no response. They they could have said if if the whole back and forth is well, I'm Joseph. You sold me as a slave, and how come you didn't care about Jacob? They could say, you know what, we made a mistake and we changed. I want to offer um, a slightly different approach in this midrash. It's it's got a special parsha podcast twist to it, and we're going to harken back to an episode we did a few weeks ago, a parsha podcast favorite. From Parshas Vayera, titled Abraham, Abraham. I want to suggest maybe a different approach. The brothers had a very low opinion of Joseph. They hated him. They couldn't see anything good about him. And then he had the dreams, and those dreams further aggravated their hatred for him. And they called him a dreamer. And they couldn't find a single redeeming quality about him. And when they descended to Egypt, Rashi tells us they were looking for Joseph, but they were looking in the wrong places. They were not looking in the halls of power. They were looking in the brothels. That's where they expected to find him. And they meet Joseph. It's their own brother. And they don't recognize him. Rashi says, well, he had a beard. Okay. But still, you, know, you put on a beard with someone, you know, you're having a protracted debates with them. You imagine that you could see past the beard and say, well, you know, kind of that, that face looks familiar, has a distinct resemblance, maybe to us. I should just tell us that Joseph and Jacob were spitting images of each other. He looked exactly like Jacob. Jacob had a beard, you imagine as well. So the fact that this king, this viceroy of Egypt is Joseph, it's staring them in the face. It's it's being broadcasted to them so overtly and they're they're missing it. They don't see what's obvious to everyone else. And the reason why not is because they could not possibly even consider a possibility that Joseph actually had the goods. They never considered that this was actually Joseph because it's obviously not Joseph. Joseph, they argued, would never become a king. And no amount of toying with them and winking and nodding and arranging them by age and signaling that this is Joseph, no amount of that would help. The one thing that was settled is that Joseph... He's a dreamy one. He's a lad. He's immature. He's underdeveloped. Nothing will come out of him. So what do we do? Do we kill him? Do we throw him into a pit? Do we sell him? That's the variance of possibility that could happen with with Joseph. Okay, is is he alive? Is he in the brothel? This brothel? Maybe that brothel? In their view, there was zero possibility that Joseph was actually a bearer of transcendental greatness. And then Joseph drops the bomb. I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? And they could not respond. Their perspective about Joseph 
was proven to be so utterly false that they just are unable to say anything. The gap, the delta between how they perceived Joseph, how they envisioned Joseph, how they, in their head, how they mapped out Joseph's potential paths in life and the various different places he could end up in. The ceiling of Joseph's potential did not include this possibility. Best case scenario, he's not here. The gap between that and what Joseph actually became was so vast that everything about what they perceived was wrong. And they had no words. In their view, there was no way that this person is Joseph, but he actually is Joseph. And that misjudgment, that gross misjudgment was so profound, they're out of words. Says the Midrash. This will happen to every person in the future. When you die, you will face a tribunal and there's going to be judgment. And judgment, we know what judgment is. But there will also be rebuke. In the words of the Midrash, what does it mean, rebuke? God will come and will prove to everyone, lefi ma shehu, each individual will be rebuked as per what he is. You recall the podcast episode, Abraham, Abraham. Every person exists on two fronts. There's Abraham 1, Abraham 2, Abraham below and Abraham above. There's Abraham above, that's the most idealized version of Abraham. And there's Abraham below, and your job is lech lecha, go towards yourself, go towards that other Abraham. And Abraham is the one person who fully actualized his potential, or the first person we shall say, the first person to fully actualize his potential and he brought the Abraham below to become adjacent to Abraham above. And that's why it says, Avraham, Avraham, Abraham, Abraham. When someone is judged, so the part of judgment, Yom Hadin, the day of judgment, that's your behavior, what you did, what you did wrong, what you did right, maybe. Rebuke, that refers to when a person is shown what they could have become. And the rebuke is on the difference, the delta, the gulf between what a person actually became and what that same person could have become had they utilized all of their potential. The Hebrew word for rebuke is tochacha or hochacha, which is the same word as proof. You know, in English, we have a word, there's a word rebuke, and there's a word to reprove someone, to bring a reproof. To reprove someone means to bring a proof against their claim. A person is going to be expected to achieve what they could have achieved. And then they're going to get to meet the heavenly version of themselves, the Abraham too, the Joseph too, 
And that's the reproof. Why didn't you become what you should have become? We call it the, the come to Joseph moment. And this happened to the brothers. They saw it with their very eyes. They saw Joseph too. And there's an enormous gulf between what they thought Joseph could have become, what he was capable of, and between what he actually became. And that reproof to the brothers in their perception of Joseph, that will happen to every person about themselves. Every Abraham will get to meet Abraham number two. Every person will meet the heavenly version of themselves. And this thing, this entity that you will meet, it's an identical replica of yourself. It's what someone with the identical breakdown of abilities and tools and qualities and skills and opportunities would look like. Had they utilized every opportunity and deployed every ability and overcome every challenge and marshaled every ounce of their potential and their power and their ability to the max. That is what version 2.0 of you looks like. And that's the proof in heaven that you will meet. God will reprove someone as per what they are. This is what you are. If you utilize your opportunities. Every person will meet themselves. And like the brothers, when they met Joseph too, he's the same person. But he's completely different than what they could have imagined. There's no response. So whereas the Basin Levy is focusing on the brothers' hypocrisy and how they cared for Jacob with respect to Benjamin versus how they cared for Jacob with respect to Joseph, and that's the rebuke, I think our interpretation is a bit more direct. Joseph existed in their minds in one way and not in another way. The idea of Joseph coming king and ruling over them and being superior to them, that was a dream. That was nonsense. In their mind, there's no version of Joseph that will actually become a consummate king before whom they would bow. That is just not feasible. And this is the rebuke. The rebuke is where you, you're shown Joseph to. This is the same Joseph. Look what he became. And that experience where there is a, a very sharp and a very visceral contrast between what you think the potential of a person is and what it actually is, that will be applied by God to every person. Like the brother's attitude towards Joseph, I would imagine most of us towards ourselves, we have a, a small self-perception, relatively. We don't think that we can accomplish that much. And we find all sorts of ways to comfort ourselves, to say, well, you know, we're doing, we're, we're working really hard. We're working really hard. I'm putting in the effort. The dissonance that the feeling of unrealized potential raises within a person, it's very uncomfortable. And we say, you know what, you know, maybe I'm not 100%, but I'm 90%. I'm working really hard. In heaven, we will be reproved based upon what we are. And we're going to meet a person 
that is as different between what we became and what we ultimately could have become, as different as the brother's perception of Joseph versus what Joseph actually became. In heaven, we will meet Joseph, number two, Abraham, number two. Insert your name here, number two. And then, says the Midrash, we will be dumbstruck. Like the brothers, when they met Joseph, the version of ourselves that we will encounter will be so much greater than what we imagine our ceiling to be in our most ambitious dreams. Of course, this is terrifying. Perhaps this is why the Torah spends so much time on this. The whole story of the, of the brothers and Joseph and their attitudes towards him. The enmity, the hatred, the envy, the mocking, the derision. This is a dreamer. And this, at this one moment, they have this very dramatic, sudden, unexpected revelation. And this, the Midrash tells us, it's a lesson for us as well. Each one of us, says the Midrash, will have our day of reckoning, a day of judgment, a day of tochacha, of proof, of reproof, of rebuke, of admonition, of reprimandation and castigation. We will meet ourselves. And that's terrifying. And I think this should mobilize us to do whatever we can to shrink the difference between Joseph 1 and Joseph 2, Abraham 1, Abraham 2, insert your name here, 1, insert your name here, 2. Let's try to be less shocked when we have that moment. And of course, that is our deepest desire to develop ourselves to actualize our potential, and to become the person that we can become with the help of the Almighty. I appreciate your listenership. I hope you enjoyed this, if it is possible to enjoy it. I know we start off by saying you got to be joyous, but then it's like, oh no, I'm so sad and so depressed. No, 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 no sadness, no depression. Let's go. We're still alive. We still have a chance. Like Elijah told this person, it's not time to cry about this. Now is the time to work. We're here to work. We know what we need to do. It's not easy. If it would be easy, it's not worth it. We're here to do what's hard. Just like going to the moon, in the words of JFK, in Houston, Texas, we choose to go to the moon, not because it is easy, but because it's hard. He said that in Houston, Texas. That's what we stand for, the Torch Center in Houston, Texas, to do things that are hard, not things that are easy, but the things that are hard are most rewarding. Every time we elevate ourselves, we, of course, we have to work really hard to do it. But once we do it, we get a feeling of unmatched gratification. There's no pleasure that matches self-actualization. And that's what we're doing it. And of course, not to get overwhelmed and not to get depressed, not to get sad or anxious about it. With joy. With joy. From the Torch Center in Houston, Texas. My email address is rabbiwolbajim.com. Send me an email. Let me know how things are going. Have a wonderful day. Have a splendid, sensational, uplifting, and meaningful Shabbos upcoming. And please, God, with the help of the Almighty, 
We will talk again next week.